Wandering Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 111. We're going to deviate just a little bit from where I said we would be when I told you in the last episode we might take a wander and listen to Yuri Nasenko. We are going to do that, but we're not going to do it just quite yet. I think today we're going to hear the rest of the story, the rest of what it took for Oswald to make his way out of the Soviet Union with Marina and young June. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 111 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. An entry in Oswald's historic diary indicates that he waited until mid-May 1961 before he told Marina that he was intending to go back to the United States. Oswald met Marina in March of 1961 on the rebound from Ella German, and by that time he had already written to the U.S. authorities at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, requesting that he be allowed to return to the United States. As Marina would tell the story, well, she would say that Oswald basically lied to her by not telling her of these intentions to go home, not telling her prior to their wedding. In her own words, she was startled. Oswald's next letter to the embassy was also in mid-May, and it now acknowledged that he was married and he wanted his new Russian wife to accompany him to America. As we have stated before in that letter, Oswald asked for assurances that he would not be pursued by the United States in any sort of criminal action if he was to return home. Oswald knew that the potential for being charged with treason or espionage or some related charge was very real. The Oswalds, as a couple, were now in a bureaucratic waiting game, and it was a complicated one. Oswald was leaving the Soviet Union in an unusual circumstance as an American who had previously attempted to renounce his citizenship and attempted to give up American military secrets to the Soviets. And he was now attempting to leave Russia with a Soviet citizen as his newfound wife, a wife who had, as an uncle, a relative who was a lower-level security agent in the Soviet security apparatus. Not an especially good fact pattern for pleading his case, either to the Soviets or to the Americans. To top it off, the Oswalds were fighting a lot at the beginning, but soon Marina was pregnant with Oswald's first child. Marina would learn of her pregnancy in June. The joy about the pregnancy may have been more from Lee than it was from Marina at this early moment in time. She was said to be ambivalent about it, and that very well may have related to her ambivalence about Lee early on. Oswald was getting impatient as the time continued to pass, and personnel at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow did not provide any answer to his mid-May letter and request. So, he obtained permission from the Russian authorities to travel to Moscow, and he did that in early July, and he showed up on Saturday 
July 8th, at the U.S. Embassy, and he made an inquiry regarding the status of his letter. He was told to come back on Monday, a little bit like the same experience that he had had several years earlier when he went to try to renounce his U.S. citizenship. But this time, he did come back on Monday. Marina was already feeling the early strains of the marriage and the confusion of the situation with Lee. Purportedly, as Oswald stepped onto the train in Minsk and made his way to Moscow, Marina would take advantage of the weekend alone and seek out and sleep with one of her former boyfriends, a young man named Leonoid. Obviously, all unknown to Lee. But Lee, after reaching the embassy on Saturday, would call Marina on the telephone over the weekend and ask her to come to Moscow so that she could be there on Monday when he returned to the U.S. Embassy. She did just that, and on Monday, when Lee returned to tell his story and plead his case to the American consul, Marina would be waiting outside the embassy in anticipation of what was happening inside. That Monday morning, in a twist of fate, Oswald met with Richard Snyder, the American consul, and the very same man who sent him out of the embassy on that fateful day two years before when he was trying to renounce his U.S. citizenship, and Snyder diverted him from doing so. Oswald was determined to say and do what was necessary to get he and Marina out of Russia and to the United States. To that end, he told several lies to Snyder during the conversation and interview. He said he had never applied for Soviet citizenship, and that was basically not true. He said that he was not part of the factory union, and that was basically not true. And he stated that he had never made derogatory statements about the United States, and Clearly, based on even just the one letter of his to his brother Robert, that statement also was not true. Still, Snyder concluded that overall, Oswald was remorseful over his actions and that he truly wanted to come home. Oswald had gotten over the hump with Snyder, and the next steps were then initiated. Oswald's American passport was set to expire on September 10, 1961, just about 60 days from that meeting. Snyder knew that without a valid American passport, Oswald would have a very difficult time obtaining an exit visa from the Soviets. And Snyder also knew that the Soviets were slow and were unlikely to provide Oswald with such an exit visa prior to the scheduled expiration of his passport. So Snyder had Oswald fill out an application for an American passport renewal. And upon completion of the form right there that day, the embassy stamped Oswald's passport with a restriction, which read, This passport is valid only for direct travel to the United States. But in Oswald's case, there was more needed before he would be allowed to travel back. There was more to be done at the State Department on the U.S. side, and the Soviets would still need to grant him an exit visa. First, though, let's touch upon the internal review within the U.S. State Department machinery. Oswald was well known by now within the State Department machinery given what had happened upon his entry into the Soviet Union and his unsuccessful attempt to renounce his American citizenship. So, it was inevitable that this case was going to be reviewed by more than just Richard Snyder. And in typical bureaucratic fashion, it was. Sometime later, Bernice Waterman, who was a longtime employee in the passport office in Washington, D.C., took a look at it. 
the paperwork associated with the granting of the passport extension, that is. His review reaffirmed Snyder's decision, but it didn't stop there. The decision was also reviewed by the chief of the passport office's foreign operations division, and at least one element of the legal arm of that passport office also reviewed and approved the decision. So, if this was some sort of clandestine process to get Oswald back in the country by, say, the CIA, well, it was definitely done in a way that makes it look pretty routine. That is not to say that this clearly could have been staged, could have been kabuki theater, a moment made to look as if Oswald was just a garden variety oddity of a guy who went to Russia, sort of tried to defect, and who changed his mind. An insignificant player in terms of U.S. security activities, and nobody really in that respect. The process related to granting Oswald his right to return was, on the surface, nothing special beyond the inherently bizarre circumstances that Oswald had already gotten himself into. Of course, the deeper you go down this rabbit hole, the more opportunity you have to study all sorts of potential or apparent oddities. We'll get into more of that when we talk about Oswald's connection to the CIA. But for now, one of the more mundane things to mention relates to the details of the paperwork Oswald had to fill out when he went through the passport application. Not only was there a standard application for renewal, but there was also a supplemental questionnaire. And back in those days, they made copies by using a carbon sheet placed in between two pieces of paper with the original being on top. The carbon copy wasn't always clear, and sometimes it was smudged. Sometimes the typewriter upon which it was written was not working perfectly on a mechanical basis, and the hammer stamp of a given key might be too light to read it on the carbon copy. In any case, there were a million reasons why the carbon copy was less clear than the original. On the supplemental questionnaire, there were four questions that had to be answered that, if answered in the affirmative by an applicant, were considered de facto proof that a person had forfeited their American citizenship. You had to answer all four of those questions in the negative by selecting one of two boxes for each question in order to be reaffirmed. One box stating that I have and the other box stating that I have not. Some researchers have cited that on Oswald's passport extension form, it indicates that he engaged in one or more of the prescribed acts. Obviously, the ramifications of this are obvious. Had this been true, had Oswald filled this out this way, that is, answering affirmatively to one of the disqualifying questions, then that means that Richard Snyder circumvented the rules when he granted the passport, and that obviously would create suspicion in people's minds as to what the real process was behind bringing Oswald back into the U.S. The Warren Commission indicates that it was simply a typing error and that the only place this occurs is on the carbon copy of the request and not on the original document. Some researchers have attempted to retrieve and review both the original and the carbon copy without success. So it's not quite clear what the true answer is to this. However, the author and researcher Gerald Posner indicates that Schneider went further and had Oswald fill out a supplementary questionnaire, and that questionnaire contained more detailed answers. And in those answers, Oswald indicated that he had not violated any of the four questions that were related to disqualification. 
So in Posner's mind, this put to bed the controversy as to whether there was any special treatment afforded Oswald related to his reentry paperwork and the re-up of his passport. Case closed, as Posner would say. By the way, the four questions were simple. They all had to do with actions that you might have undertaken while you were in a foreign state. First, did you swear allegiance to that foreign state? Second, did you serve in the foreign state's government? Third, did you serve in its military? And finally, fourth, did you vote in any of its elections? I think it's believable that Oswald didn't do any of these while he was in the Soviet Union. Oswald himself would assert on his own passport reapplication that he was still an American citizen. On the American side of things, of course, the next step was for Marina to obtain an entrance visa to the United States. And so she, too, would then have to meet at the American embassy with officials there and make her application. Lee and Marina were in Moscow together, and so on July 11th, Tuesday, the day after Oswald took care of his own circumstance, Marina went back to the American embassy when she met with Richard Snyder's assistant, a man named John McVicker. It was a straightforward application process, and it focused on three areas. One, was Marina the wife of an American? Two, had she voluntarily joined any communist organizations? Three, would she become a public charge if she was allowed to enter the United States? In other words, would her entry create an economic obligation of the state, an obligation to take care of her in some way and become a financial burden? Maria was a member of the Commissar, which was the Communist Youth League in the Soviet Union, and Lee was sensitive and encouraged her to lie about this, which she did when she went through her interview. She denied any affiliation with the Commissar. Researchers have pointed out that being a member of the Commissar, as Marina was, would not have been an automatic disqualification. But the Oswalds had limited understanding of this at the time, and I am sure that they felt that the easier path was to have her lie about it. McVicker knew that involvement in the trade unions was mandatory, and so the answer to that was not an automatic disqualification. Now their work was done, and later in the week, both Marina and Lee would return to Minsk. Oswald, that same week, would write his brother, and update him on what had just happened and letting him know that they were working on an exit strategy and they were doing everything possible to leave the Soviet Union. It didn't take long after they returned to Minsk for the word to get out about what was happening with them and there were ramifications particularly for Marina. Lee would write about it in his July 15th diary entry. He was upset about it and he described it as a strong browbeating that Marina had taken at work. The commissar also expelled her that same month. Oswald would chronicle what was going on and actually put it in a letter to the American embassy, characterizing it as there had been some unusual and crude attempts on my wife at her place of work. All of this was perfectly predictable, including the basic shunning that Marina would receive once the news began to spread. Nevertheless, they were moving forward and it was time to begin working on the paperwork that would be required from the Soviets in order to obtain a Soviet exit visa for both of them. Marina not only needed an exit visa, but she also needed a passport and she did not have one 
It was not something that most Russians had in general. Lee would soon have in his possession almost 20 bureaucratic forms that needed to be filled out and provided back to the Soviets. Methodically, he completed them, and he did so over the course of the next 30 days, submitting them to the Soviets. Some researchers indicate that Oswald's dyslexic qualities provided a real hurdle in getting all of these forms filled out properly, and that he apparently took multiple blank copies home and started over after making mistakes on several occasions. One of the reasons which contributed to the 30-day period that it took to complete them. Lee would chronicle this exercise in his diary, and on August 20th, he wrote, we had given the papers out, and they say it will be three and a half months before we know whether they let us go or not. We only hope that the visas come through soon. Oswald had no intention of submitting the paperwork and being passive about the process. He was ready to go home. So, after submitting the paperwork, he attempted to speed up the work of the Soviet authorities and apparently visited the passport office and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and also the Ministry of Internal Affairs. He was covering every one of the bases and attempting to make sure that everyone involved in the process was aware of his intentions to go back to the U.S. as quickly as he could. He wrote in his diary that he had extracted promises of quick attention and throughout the period of September and October, he would write more, sometimes chronicling the fact that nothing had happened. One time he wrote, very simply, no word from men, meaning no word from the ministry. By October, he was getting more desperate, and Oswald would then plead with the American embassy to intervene with the Soviet authorities and ask them to do anything that they could to expedite obtaining the exit visas for both he and Marina. He was somewhat indignant about this, pointing to his lawful right as an American citizen and requested that the embassy make an official inquiry to the Russian Interior Ministry since, as Oswald described it, there had been systematic and concerted attempts to intimidate my wife and to withdraw her application for her visa. The ramifications of this rather dramatic decision to leave the country went beyond just Marina. We haven't said much about her aunt and uncle, but Marina's uncle worked essentially in the local militia, and he feared the loss of his job, his apartment, his pension, with his niece being potentially branded as an enemy of the state for wanting to go to America. Some of the older members of her family were doing their best to dissuade Marina from going with Lee, telling her stories. In fact, two aunts told her stories that the U.S. was not a desirable environment and that it was a place where most men and women were poor and unemployed. Well, the Oswalds just had to continue to wait, and that's what they did. Now it was October, and finally it was October 18th, which was Lee's 22nd birthday. Marina had decided to go out of town to the Erg Mountains, where she would be visiting her aunt, and Oswald would spend his birthday alone. He continued to write in his diary, and his entries in the coming months, the months that stretched into winter, would be bleak. His diary entries in November and December would chronicle that he and Marina were annoyed about the delay, and that Marina was beginning to waver about going to the United States, probably from the strain of it all. Apparently, Marina was increasingly nervous and becoming depressed. 
often sobbing at night about her decision to leave Russia. In December, in an expression of the extreme frustration that Oswald was feeling, he wrote a letter to then-Senator John Tower of Texas, hoping that Tower could help him with the problem of moving the Soviets along. And he would say in the letter that the Soviets refused to permit me and my Soviet wife to leave the Soviet Union. I beseech you, Senator Tower, to raise the question of the holding by the Soviet Union of a U.S. citizen against his will and expressed desires. The letter finally reached Tower's office on January 26, 1962, but by that time the Soviets had informed the Oswalds that their exit visas were approved at that time. Imagine that. I wonder if the Soviets read the letter before it left the border on its way home to the USA. Oswald would record this new and exciting news in his diary on Christmas Day, 1961, in a very simple entry that seems so fitting. He would write, It's great, but in parentheses, I think. There is a story that Oswald's frustration became so great over the Soviet delay that he startled some of his KGB watchers by taking steps to build two small rudimentary bombs. Some of his KGB watchers thought that Oswald might try to use the bombs to force the issue of his exit visas, but apparently he abandoned the project shortly after receiving permission to emigrate. This is an odd story and probably requires more detailed understanding because it clearly goes to the state of mind that Oswald exhibited from time to time under circumstances like this. It would be about a month later that Marina would give birth to their first daughter, June, and at least for the next several months, as they waited, their life was now naturally consumed with the introduction of a baby into the mix. Ironically, at this point, the slow Soviet bureaucracy was actually ahead of the Americans in approving Marina's departure. The process of Marina's U.S. immigration visa was still underway. John McVicker had recommended approval on August 20th, 1961, but there was a process within the State Department that such an unusual immigration had to go through. The State Department conducted a security check on Marina through the CIA and the FBI, and after about two months in October of 1961, the State Department informed the U.S. Embassy in Moscow that Marina was eligible for an immigrant visa. Unfortunately for Marina, the State Department was still concerned about her being a public charge. There was a considerable level of back-and-forth correspondence on this issue, which further delayed things, but in the end, Oswald would obtain and the State Department would accept affidavits from Oswald himself and his mother's Texas employer to guarantee Marina's support in the U.S., this entire process had to be completed first within the State Department and then once ready to go would be shipped to the INS or Immigration and Naturalization Service, the final USA agency that had to approve Marina's visa. They finally got it all in October of 1961. The State Department was fully aware of this bizarre circumstance and when they forwarded the file to the INS, they wrote that it believes it was in the interest of the U.S. to get Lee Harvey Oswald and his family out of the Soviet Union and on their way to this country soon. An unstable character 
whose actions are entirely unpredictable, Oswald may well refuse to leave the USSR or subsequently attempt to return there if we should make it impossible for him to be accompanied from Moscow by his wife and child. This was enough for the INS, and they gave their final approval in May 1962. The Oswalds would need money as well in order to travel back halfway around the world, and Oswald requested a repatriation loan from the State Department so he could pay for the transportation to the States. They gave it to him. On June 1st, he signed a promissory note totaling $435.71. On that same day, Lee and Marina and baby June stepped onto a train and made their way toward Rotterdam, where they would have passage on a ship to the United States. Oswald had unsuccessfully sought a grant of $1,000 from the International Rescue Committee of the Red Cross. He didn't get it. He had saved about $200 while he was in the Soviet Union, and he combined that money with the State Department loan, and that was almost the exact amount needed for train and sea travel to America, which was the cheapest way to get there. Apparently, Oswald was upset that he didn't have enough money to travel by airplane. There are so many suspicious elements around his re-entry, and it gives conspiracy theorists a lot of opportunity over the years to pose questions. Back in those days, when you got a loan from the State Department, there was supposed to have been a mechanism known as a warning tag that would be attached to your passport file. It was a simple methodology to assure that Oswald, at some point in the future, would repay the loan. That warning tag was never placed in Oswald's file. After the assassination of the State Department, legal advisor Abram Chase admitted that it was a bureaucratic mistake. As you might expect, some people assumed it was evidence of wrongdoing or conspiracy. Jim Garrison, the New Orleans district attorney, who you'll get to know better in future episodes, even charged that the whole loan was a sham, citing certain State Department rules, that a U.S. citizen receiving such loan had to have his loyalty proven beyond question. As authors like Gerald Posner would point out, the State Department used other available clauses within its bureaucratic framework and authority to advance the loan, and in this case, the money was advanced under a special clause covering situations that are, quote, damaging to the prestige of the United States government. The State Department held that the clause applied to Oswald since his unstable character and prior criticisms of the United States made his presence in the USSR damaging to U.S. prestige. This conclusion seems pretty reasonable to me and not conspiratorial at all. But then again, who knows? And each of us as a juror has to decide. Obviously, we're not going deeply enough into all the minor details here, but at least on the surface, it all seems consistent with a highly bureaucratic and relatively impartial process that the Oswalds went through that frankly took a long time and probably uh, in most hindsight analysis of that time frame that while it seemed to drag on, the Oswalds experience was fairly consistent with the amount of time it might have taken anyone in that circumstance to obtain visas in Marina's passport. It's really hard to determine here, but it does seem very clear that the State Department did take special steps to get him back, given the delicate nature of his case, to begin with, which all seems quite normal under the circumstances. 
As they left Minsk for this final travel to Rotterdam, some of their closest friends, including the Zygers and Pavel, went to the train station to see them off. It's probably true that Marina recounted in her head the warnings of her uncle about the fickle Oswald, remembering her uncle's words that he flits from side to side in his unhappiness, and he is unhappy everywhere. Maybe he'll go back and not like it there, and then he'll want to come back here, but he'll never be allowed to come back. People are tired of nursing him over here. And that was true. There was no heading back. And soon, all three of the Oswalds would be on the USS Mosdam and headed for the States. For listening to episode 111 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 